Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, board certified OBGYN, and you may know me from social media where I spend a lot of my time educating about everything reproductive health. This podcast is called Let's Talk About Down There, and that's what I'm doing. I am talking about down there with no shame, no stigma, a lot of fun, and a lot of education. And why? Because when we talk about these things, we educate and we empower ourselves. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body, and we're going to answer them. Hello all. This episode includes graphic descriptions of surgery and suicidality. If that is challenging for you, feel free to skip this episode. Thanks so much. Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, Danielle Bezalow. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, join my crew on Patreon to win amazing prizes like our adorable merch, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, private sessions with yours truly, and incredible sex toys. Go to patreon.com slash sexedwithdb to join my crew. Get discounts at all of my favorite brands at sexedwithdb.com. And follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. If you want to partner with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Five reasons you will masturbate more with Freya. Number one, masturbation increases the release of endorphins, which decreases stress, tension, and depression. Number two, masturbation can help you sleep better. Number three, masturbating can help strengthen and tone your pelvic floor. Number four, masturbation can lessen period cramps. Number five, masturbation can empower you to know your body better and know what feels good. Freya is the innovative premium razor and vibrator in one that gives you an amazing shave and the best clitoral workout ever. Use code SEXEDWITHDB to get 20% off your Freya. And for a limited time, you can enter to buy one Freya and get one for your bestie for free. Enter to win at highfreya.com slash sexedwithdb now. In a world that constantly encourages you to change, it's bold to just be yourself. Sexual expression and satisfaction are different for everybody, so rather than conforming to others, focus on falling in love with who you are. Lion's Den sources the very best products to help you find what you like and help you feel confident expressing your sexual desires. You can get 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com to begin exploring everything about yourself. Follow them on social at lionsdenadult on Instagram and TikTok. Let's play a little fill-in-the-blank game where you have to guess what goes in the blank. Cosmopolitan Magazine called the blank the little black dress of vibrators, and Time Magazine named the blank among the top 10 most influential gadgets of all time. Even at 50 years old, the blank is still turning heads as the most recommended and best-selling massage wand in America. Any guesses? The answer is the magic wand. It's loved by millions for a reason. It's powerful and hits all the right pleasure points. Want to see what all the fuss is about? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magicwand to learn more and see how you could win your very own Magic Wand Rechargeable. Let's talk about lube and condoms. Something important to know is that oil-based lube is not to be used with condoms because the oil can cause the condom to break or tear, which would defeat the purpose of using it. Thank goodness for Uber Lube. Uber Lube is latex compatible, so it's safe and effective to use with condoms. But wait, there's more. Dispensing two drops of UberLube inside a condom and a measured pump outside will increase pleasure. What are you waiting for? Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. 
When it comes to sex, most of us have never had access to proper education, especially when it comes to the butt. This means both beginners and experienced players have had to turn to porn, friends, or Reddit to figure out how to properly prepare, play, and care for our butts. This doesn't sound safe now, does it? That's where Future Method comes in. Future Method was founded by a doctor to help people have informed, healthy, amazing sex because we should feel good in our skin and when we're playing with our partners. If you want to learn more about how to bottom safely, go to futuremethod.com and use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off their amazing products. Hello, Dr. Peters. How's it going today? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I am great. Um, I am happy to be here. Yesterday was my 30th birthday, so uh, it was a great day and going to celebrate with some friends this weekend, which I'm really excited about and happy to have you here today. I have been a fan of your work for quite some time and am thrilled that we were able to get you on the podcast. So thanks. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Um, Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Let's get into it. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us what you do in your practice. And I'd also love to know, you know, the why behind you being motivated to do this work. Yeah. Hi, everybody. So full name's Blair Peters. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. I am located in Portland, Oregon, and I am a gender affirmation surgeon. That's kind of the the big hat I wear in my job, I suppose. So my practice is really kind of head-to-toe gender-affirming surgery with a particular focus on genital surgery. So in addition to what I'm kind of doing clinically, a lot of my research work and advocacy work is around optimizing sensory outcomes and sexual outcomes for people that are undergoing surgical transition. Um, And that kind of pours a lot into a lot of the kind of outreach and advocacy work that I do both sort of policy-wise, but also more visibly on social media. I think in terms of how I got to be exactly where I am today, I think that was sort of a stepwise process. I'm not sure it was necessarily like the end goal as much as it was making the next right decision and then finding yourself where you're at. But certainly I got into the gender-affirming work as a queer person myself, kind of starting to go through my own understanding and identity of my own or exploration of my own gender identity, and really just being in community and seeing just the lack of resources and options that people really had, even in these very developed countries. I'm from Canada, now in the United States. I was just going to ask that actually because of the way that you said process and resources. <laughs> I was like, you're Canadian for sure. Yeah, those. it's so funny you mentioned that because those are the two words that my partner always flags as well. <laughs> you can just tell. You can just hear it right away. Okay, well, I guess there's these giveaways that I'm not apparently aware of. But yes, I am Canadian for all y'all out there. But yeah, it was just very shocking to me when I was going through my own residency training that most people were still having to travel internationally, had very poor, if any, access to follow-up care, surgical outcomes were just not standardized at all. And then, you know, once I got into this work, I'm someone that has some unique training in peripheral nerve surgery. So I feel like I kind of see nerve and sensation in everything that I do. And I think I'm kind of the first person to bring that particular lens into genital surgery. And it was just so shocking to me that we were, you know, focusing on aesthetics and urinary outcomes and all these things, but just like no one was talking to anybody about sex. And that's kind of important (laughs) when you're operating on someone's genitals. For sure. So then I think that really 
started me on the trajectory of a lot of what my energies go into, which is just really centering people and their sexual health needs in the context of gender transition, which then just overflows more broadly into, you know, a lot of the work you do too, just about sexual health and education and openness around these topics that affect literally every single person on the planet. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Um, thank you for that background, Blair. That's really helpful. And we'll definitely get into this, but I think a lot of people, at least in our circles of sexual health education and information and resources, uh, have seen, you know, the recent study that you uh, were a part of about the clitoris. And so I'm really excited to talk about that. But before we get into that, I want to know. What did your sex ed look like growing up? You're from Canada, so I can already kind of feel my brain making some assumptions there, but obviously everywhere in Canada is very different, not a monolith. But I'm curious specifically if if your sex ed growing up discussed sexual orientation or gender identity, and if so, how did that go? Um, definitely not. <laughs> so okay, Good to know. What I remember from sex ed was the first formal kind of discussion of sex in like a formal education setting was in the fifth grade in Canada. Kind of anything before that was, you know, friends, older siblings kind of, you know, giving you the street level education. The one thing I remember that was like good about sex ed in elementary school was kind of like normalization of anatomic terms. So we started that module by my teacher basically making us all to say penis, 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 vagina, 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 over and over until like no one was laughing anymore. It took a long time, <laughs> but I like that does. part of it. But then other than that, it was really just, I remember like these poorly done videos of only white straight cis people. And it was all very focused on like the wet dream and like, you know, the like woman is the temptation and the man is like the person like, you know, having all these urges. And that was like, really it certainly no discussion of like, female sexual pleasure, or any introduction about sexual orientation, different sexual practices, and then gender identity, not even on the stratosphere of being talked about. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. So you basically were like, this is zero of what I learned. And I like want to make this my career essentially through medicine to be able to help people, educate them, get them the kinds of bodies and minds that they want uh, in order to live their most authentic selves. Yeah. I mean, I summarize it that way. I think that's pretty apt. Okay, great. I'm happy to hear that. Well, okay. So gender affirming care has obviously become a quote unquote hot button issue, right? In recent years. But as we know, as educators, and as you know, as the expert in this field, and I'm definitely going to be leaning on you for your expertise and for your research and your you know, experience here, but it's very misunderstood, the fact that it's such a hot button issue. And a lot of the discourse is really biased and uses inflammatory, often incorrect language. And so I'd love to take a step back and to just get educated by you and talk about what gender affirming care actually entails. And I kind of have like a three-parter here. So, you know, we could take it one step at a time. But throughout that, I would love to hear specifically around surgery versus other gender affirming gender affirming medical treatments 
gender-affirming care for young people and how it could differ between young people and adults and maybe debunking some myths and misunderstandings there. Mm. And then puberty blockers, which obviously we can get into this. This recent harmful New York Times article is one part of the major problem around the misunderstandings around puberty blockers. But I'd love for you, for folks who haven't read that article who are listening, I do think it's important to talk about. And especially when the New York Times, quote unquote, right, is theoretically media, at least for me as like a liberal person consumes and how problematic it is that they are espousing these falsehoods, essentially. And then, you know, how puberty blockers work, are they reversible? What kinds of benefits or harm potentially are there? So those are all the things I'd like to talk about. But to recap, Mm -hmm. the first idea (laughs) um, is maybe, you know, defining gender affirming care and like talking through surgery versus other medical interventions. Yeah. So I think just like backing it up to your first point about just this whole idea of anything gender affirming being politicized, like trans people have always existed. What has shifted is the visibility around transness. And I'd argue that trans people and gender diverse people are almost hyper visible right now, which is in the context of our society, it's dangerous. And we're seeing a lot of that play out even just in terms of, you know, the fact that media outlets with as much like legitimacy and power as a New York Times can publish pieces that are just completely inaccurate and poorly researched and not even you know, representative of a real issue is, I think, just speaks to how prolific that bias is. Mm -hmm. And every single one of us, I think, has this bias towards like inherently wanting to reinforce a binary view of gender and also sexuality, because we all grew up in that world. And that's kind of what was like beat into us from the second that Gosh, even before we were born, we were like assigned some arbitrary color. (laughs) So it's really hard to kind of have to deconstruct those ideas that people are so like deeply rooted and attached to. But, you know, first and foremost, trans people have always existed. Gender affirming care, I'll kind of give you my definition of gender affirming surgery. So how I describe it is the process of aiding someone in physically actualizing their internal sense of self. That sounds a little abstract, but it should, because at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about like what it means to be trans. And there's these narratives about being born in the wrong body or this idea that you have to socially transition and then you do hormones and then you do surgery and then after surgery, you're done. And everyone's path is very different. Their goals are very different. Their identity is very different. Transition doesn't necessarily have like a destination or a directionality to it at all everyone's dysphoria is completely different. Not all trans people have dysphoria. So it's really about just meeting the person where they are and figuring out what they need to live their life the most authentically and to take away the barriers that are holding them back from engaging with the world the way that they want to. I think that's how I kind of summarize the broad themes of gender affirming care and kind of what modern models look like. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you make a really excellent point in the sense that it's not necessarily this ladder, right? Of And maybe some people follow this ladder, but it's not sure, a, yeah. a sure thing that everyone changes their name and their pronouns, and then they change the way they dress, and then hormone therapy, and then surgery. Because I do think there is this misconception or this idea 
that that is the order of no pun intended operations. Yeah. I mean, it's still the minority of trans people that are undergoing surgical care. Yeah. Do you have like statistics on that to like really ground what that looks like for people? I think it's, I get reluctant to throw out numbers because the issue with it is it has been so historically inaccessible and in many ways it still is. So like for context, my wait list for a top surgery consultation is over two years just to be wow. seen because there's such a paucity of care available that I don't think we truly understand what the percentage of people that identify as trans would want surgical care wise in a world where it's actually accessible to them. Cause it's still the minority of people that are adequately resourced to be able to even navigate the U S healthcare system right. to actually access those sort of resources. So I don't really know where it bottoms out at. The other factor with that is I think our outcomes have been getting a lot better in recent years as this has sort of entered the mainstream consciousness of academia and there's research being done and we have centers of excellence doing surgery in high volumes. And as outcomes improve, more people are, you know, wanting to potentially undergo like a genital surgery that maybe they didn't feel the outcome was worth the risk to them previously. So I think there's a lot shifting with that. But I think the take home is that, you know, most trans people are not currently having surgery. Gotcha. Yeah, that is helpful. And yeah, really good point around like these numbers might look different if most people had the access that they wanted and needed. I kind of, I'm thinking just you saying that made me think of abortion care and the fact that abortion is so inaccessible to so many people. And as we see the data that you know, come out recently just around there being less abortions after Roe v. Wade being overturned because people have less access. It's just, shocking. <laughs> yeah, right. What? How? How surprising that that is related. Um, and yeah. just it's just so awful because as we talk about on this podcast all the time, abortion has been inaccessible for many, many people for many, many years. Specifically, minority communities, Black and Brown people, low income people, poor people, and it's a shame that people pay attention more, obviously, when it impacts them or when it impacts white people or et cetera. Oh, um, yeah. No, that in itself is like, I bring that whole point up a ton in kind of conference or lecture settings when I, I sometimes get asked to speak about like queer representation and what allyship looks like in medicine or at a lot of these more conservative institutions. And I really bring up Roe v. Wade a lot because there's so so many of the people that are like reaching out for these talks or so many people that I'm speaking to in these audiences are people that have traditionally had access or have privilege or some type of power. So it's a lot of white, cisgender, heterosexual people, including women. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of bring up that exact idea of there being this like huge outrage when Roe v. Wade was overturned and this response of, well, I'm not going to celebrate Independence Day because no one's free in this country. And, you know, this is an attack on autonomy and all these things. And just making that statement comes off as so ignorant. If you look at the last two to three years of hundreds and hundreds of bills of anti-trans legislation and just like assaults on queer people's autonomy for years leading up to this. And there's a very clear linear trajectory here. So if you're just like waiting for your group to be affected and letting everyone else that's like less privileged or more marginalized than you to have their rights stripped, then you're already too late and you're like missing the whole idea here. And I think so many of the reasons why like gender identity and transness has been politicized is because politicians really are just failing 
in so many ways. Like people can't afford to like buy a house anymore. Like no one can get a job that like makes ends meet. And they're just taking this issue and trying to take the most marginalized group of people and sort of create this like rallying point around like hate projected towards them and to like miscast the way that people are feeling in this country right now and like making transness and like gender identity the problem. It's just like really pathetic. It's weak, but it shocks me that people just can't see that because they're just getting so roped into it. But y- y'all, y'all are being played. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> Wake the fuck up. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's so much of what you just... Yeah, I mean, that's... Yes, that is a lot of the issue of like people essentially being distracted, right? By like all of these horrific things that are happening, but have been, once again, have been happening for a very long time. And you're right, like we are now more than ever seeing anti-transness in politics, in bills that are being proposed, that are passing in some states, and it is actively harmful and dangerous. And we will talk about this later in the interview, but folks are dying because of this hate and because of the way in which that it is peddled in Fox News and the way in which that we see this in and again, in, in the New York fucking times, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not just Fox news. And that's what we need to really be clear about is that there are multiple angles of anti-transness and they never involve trans people. Well, and like anti-transness is almost being used now as this vehicle, you know, to sort of bring everything back. That's like sort of associated with that like level of conservatism and like abortion is one example, but even a lot of the recent sort of reaction to you know, the whole, like, I don't know if you know the Balenciaga, like, campaign with, um, like, the kids in the ads with these, like, teddy bear backpacks. And oh, some, yes, like, I heard about that. Ties to it. Like, yes. there's all kinds of problems with it. But some of the discussion around it and then even, like, other ads that are being pulled from, like, many years ago, it's almost giving, like, satanic panic vibes. Right. With, like, a lot of just, like, the reaction or, like, the narrative being assigned to things. It's just very... Yeah, it's it's just interesting to see like it escalates so quickly and everyone just kind of not see what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's so all-encompassing and there's just so much to discuss and so much horror. Um mm. and at the same time, I want to make sure that like folks who are quote unquote on our side, folks who are listening to this episode, right? Like are already wanting this information and are curious and like theoretically, I hope listener are like active when it comes to fighting for queer people, trans people. And so I wonder if you can share a little bit more about how this gender affirming care might look different depending on the population, right? So maybe from sure. adults compared to young people, maybe some like myths that come up a lot. Say you work with parents who want gender affirming care for their young people. Like what comes up in those conversations? Yeah. So I think the big kind of thing that is being used to kind of politicize care or create divisiveness or advocate against it is this idea of detransition or regret. And I think we need to like back it up and just look at even the fact that that is the lens this is all being seen through is in itself transphobic as if like we're basically saying like we are not okay with trans bodies and you know regret we have not a great sort of hold on like what is a detransition rate 
when we follow people for like decades and decades out. I don't think we really know. And the problem is, is a lot of studies will define detransition in a different way. So some studies just call a detransition someone stopping hormone therapy. People stop hormone therapy all the time. Sometimes they're like, I already had the physical changes I want and I'm losing my hair. So I'm just going to stop my testosterone. Or like, there's a million other reasons why people will detransition. And if you look at a lot of those people, the vast majority of them don't actually regret their medical interventions and most actually still feel better. And I think there's also this misunderstanding that people that detransition are not trans. Most actually still identify as trans or queer. And we know that people's gender identities shift and can be fluid. And sometimes interventions are part of someone's journey. Again, it's a journey like there's not necessarily a set destination. So the thing that makes me sad about it is a lot of people's stories. And when we think about the detransition population, they're like the most marginalized group of a marginalized group. And it's been so politicized that even the trans community in a lot of ways has turned on detrans people because they don't want them talking about their stories to be used to sort of fight against gender affirming care. And it's just really sad to see people that are so heavily marginalized and need support have their own stories almost taken and like used to still advocate against their community. It's just so wrong on so many levels. And I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that genuinely regret having a surgery. Like that is something that does happen, but it is exceptionally rare. Those stories truly are less than 1%. And when we think about surgery, like if you look at regret rates for spine surgery, like back surgery, or elective like hip or orthopedic operations, or even like nose jobs, it's like 20 plus percent. Oh, wow. People that wish they never had surgery and are like worse off without it. Honestly, I can't think of a single surgical intervention in all of my surgical training that would have like a regret rate of less than 1%. Like that success rate is honestly like shockingly high compared to anything we do in medicine, but no one talks about that. Because again, like this idea that someone could have a mental health issue that somehow is, you know, masking what their true gender identity is and they could regret is somehow such an awful thing that it's somehow put on a pedestal that, well, we just shouldn't do gender care at all and just let a whole bunch of people die. It's like just bizarre rationalization of, I hesitate to call it thinking. but (laughs) That framework is really interesting though. Like I've never thought about that. I think like you as a medical professional who has like access to that information about, you know, back surgery or other kinds of surgery. We never think about that because it doesn't have to do with gender. The number of cis women that regret breast augmentation, who can also just walk into an office and sign consent for breast augmentation. They don't have to do mental health evaluations and get letters of support for the exact same surgical procedure. Wow. Like, yeah. What That's you have to realize is to think about. like gynecomastia, like removal of male breast tissue or breast augmentation for cis people, those are gender affirming procedures. Enhancing it's a just... breast is a gender affirming procedure. So is a Brazilian butt lift or liposuction or a lot of aesthetic facial surgery and people can just sign up for it and they can regret it and no one cares because they're cis people. So it exactly. is like really, it all is rooted in anti-transness and that's just, I think, what it comes down to. And The reality with gender-affirming care is it is impossible to have a model in which we never, ever, ever have any risk of regret because we can't 
control how every single individual is going to respond to a treatment. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we kind of have a choice and it's we either continue to gatekeep and prevent a lot of people from accessing care that need it. And because of that, have massively decreased quality of life, people losing their lives, etc. And all the burden associated with that. Or we accept that there is a very small percentage of people that may have a regret or detransition. And we build up resources to support and treat people the way that they need to be supported. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when we're talking about youth, right? There's so much data that show that when youth have access to gender affirming care, that they are more likely to be mentally healthy, more stable, less suicidal ideation. Like there is so much research in that that already shows that if young people, and that's across the gamut, right? That's like respecting their name, their pronouns, their gender identity, the way in which they choose to identify their story, respecting their existence and experience getting them hormone therapy if that's what they want, puberty blockers, and then discussing surgery if that's part of their plan. And it's critical. It's life-saving. It truly is for so many young people who are experiencing that. And mm-hmm. it is very sad to me that it is it is so political because it, it, it isn't. In, in reality, it shouldn't be. No. And the thing with youth care, it is different from adult care. You know, I will be clear on that. And I think everyone is more cautious in general. And I think that's a lot of the misconception, like people that are undergoing like pubertal suppression or that eventually get hormone replacement therapy or surgery, like they have been dealing with a multidisciplinary team of people for many, many years both with mental health evaluations, behavioral health evaluations, social work intervention, familial support across the board, multiple different specialists, like no rash decisions are being made. And again, it's this idea of like, people are so hung up on like, what is in effect, mostly theoretical risks, or like very, very small risks, or like isolated stories of negative outcomes, compared to vastly overwhelming evidence that this is suicide prevention and helps with mental health. And just no one's willing to kind of talk about that piece of it. And I think more than anything, like trans youth are really the ones that are being targeted the most in this country. And there's a lot of states where care has just been shut down entirely. And there's teens that are at risk of being forced to detransition. And you know, I live in Oregon, which is a very protected state. And constantly, we just have more and more people moving here, if they have the resources just to be in a state where they feel that they're maybe more safe, but we have access to healthcare. But there's a lot of people that don't like there's a lot of people in Arkansas or Texas that don't have the resources to get care elsewhere and are in a really, really bad spot. Excitement, intimacy, anticipation, contentment. Uberlube lets you feel all the things you want to feel when it comes to sex with yourself and with a partner. It makes sex better for everyone by reducing friction and increasing pleasure. Recommended by leading doctors, Uberlube is body friendly, free of parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. Plus, Uberlube is latex compatible, so it's safe, effective, and pleasurable to use with condoms. Try Uberlube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Let me tell you about one of my favorite sex toy shops out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you all about them. 
Lion's Den first opened its retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they have grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the U.S., building its reputation on high-quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff. Their staff are also sexual wellness experts who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They're simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now. Understanding how to love ourselves and our bodies can take practice, time, and energy. Freya believes that it's really important to invest in loving the body you're in, and pleasure plays a huge part in that. I know it does for me. When I'm able to access my pleasure, I'm able to feel and see my body in a whole new way. My pleasure empowers me. That's why I love Freya. It's more than a razor and a vibe. It's a movement to practice loving ourselves with intention. For those who haven't tried a vibrator, this is a great first-timer product to venture into and explore your own pleasure. Learn more about Freya and their self-love movement at highfreya.com slash sexedwithdb. When it comes to anal sex, what comes to mind? If you're a beginner like so many of us out there, maybe you feel scared, unsure, or just plain uneducated. Future Method can help with that. Founded by a doctor and anal sex expert, Future Method develops science-backed products and non-judgmental doctor-led education to maximize pleasure, eliminate injury, and empower the way people choose to play in the bedroom. They even have a blog started by the gay community and now for everyone that puts education at the forefront on topics both popular and taboo. Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at futuremethod.com. Finally, we can travel again. If you're like me, I bet you want a little pleasure while you're away, but can't fit your entire sex toy collection in your carry-on, huh? Say hello to the Magic Wand Mini. Born into such a famous family, this little wand has quite a reputation to uphold. Challenge accepted. Offering big power, multiple speeds, and unsurpassed quality, the full-featured Magic Wand Mini is more than simply a smaller sibling. It's here to create a legacy all its own. Want to win a Magic Wand Mini for your next trip or staycation? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magicwand to learn more. And while we're on the topic of puberty blockers, I do think now is the perfect time to talk a little bit about, you know, maybe you can educate folks like what are they, how do they work, if they're reversible, and then if you're down to talk through like that New York Times article and like what the New York Times writers in that article, like who they were, what they were saying, and like why it was harmful. Yeah. So I'll preface this with saying I am a surgeon. I'm not a pediatric endocrinologist. So by no means am I like the expert on this topic. Um, But I do have a lot of patients that, you know, have been on pubertal suppression or it's a factor in some of what I do. But what pubertal suppression is, is it's called the gonadotropin releasing hormone or GNRH agonist. So basically there's this whole cascade of hormonal changes that happen at puberty And this medication, you can think of it as a pause button. So it basically suspends your body producing sex steroids. So it prevents basically the irreversible changes that come with puberty. So that's the thing where people are thinking about a potential risk of a medication. 
the reality is that if you have a trans teen who is started on a pubertal suppression medication early enough, let's say you have someone assigned male at birth, you can prevent facial hair growth, you can prevent their voice from dropping, you can prevent permanent skeletal changes, and a bunch of things that would actually need surgery secondarily, or a bunch of things that could never be addressed with surgery, in addition to sort of avoiding the trauma of going through like potentially the wrong puberty. And that's sort of like the decision that a lot of these endocrinologists are making. There is not like a do nothing, do no harm approach because you're either treating somebody or you are forcing them to go through a puberty that is going to be incredibly traumatic with irreversible changes to their body that may not ever be able to be fixed in addition to the like acute mental health trauma of that. So this whole like watch and wait approach, well, that doesn't exist. Like you, regardless of the decision you're making, it's an active decision with repercussions and consequences. It's also not a permanent treatment. So it really is a pause button. The idea is you're giving the teenager as well as the family like more time to adjust and feel like, am I stable in my identity? Have I been really consistent with what my goals and expectations are? Maybe I've had some friends go through their natal puberty and I've seen like what that looks like. Because eventually you need to go through a puberty of some sort. So either what will happen is the individual will decide they want to stop pubertal suppression, which is super rare and uncommon. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Or they'll decide that they want to go on to gender from hormone therapy. And okay. then they'll have hormone replacement with the sort of sex appropriate steroid. And just to pause you for a moment, like that means something, right? Like that means that youth genuinely do as opposed to what people think, right? That, oh, kids just change their mind all the time. Like young people who make those decisions for themselves have been thinking about this for a really long time in many cases and are so happy to have that access. And we need way more research too, because I think even people that are on pubertal suppression for longer periods of time, we don't know if it's because like the teen themselves actually still has questions or is thinking about their goals and exploring, or if the parents are just reluctant to Mm. take a more permanent intervention in the form of hormone therapy, because pubertal suppression is reversible. If you take it away, then your body resumes its natal puberty and you go through as you otherwise would. So really the first intervention that potentially has some irreversible changes is the administration of exogenous hormones. Gotcha. Yeah, that's extremely helpful. And now to the New York Times article. So now that we have that basis of information, talk about that. Yeah. So I think a lot of the coverage from the Times in regards to just anything trans this year has really been this like manufactured divisiveness. It's always been well, let's find like one positive trans story and let's find someone with like regret or detransition and let's frame it as this like 50-50 debate as if there's equal merit to both sides and that's supposed to be representative of the trans experience, which is so manipulative in itself in sort of the ideas that it's perpetuating to society. The other key thing is none of the people that have written or done any of the investigations for these articles are actually trans themselves or have any like meaningful experience with the trans community, which is kind of atypical in a lot of coverage of things. So that in itself, I think, is also an issue that people should be paying attention to. But that article in particular, you know, was guilty of the same things. It kind of took three people's stories and... It really just focused on some potential risk and 
did not discuss any of like the massive benefits or all of the evidence supporting these treatments. And really just was like another piece that's just going to fear monger. And to people that don't know better or have context, you're going to read that and completely leave with a misconstrued understanding of what's happening for care for youth. And I think, especially like in this day and age, and you know, Chase Strangio is always putting out like fire tweet threads about this. There's just been no accountability for a lot of the journalists that are writing pieces that are literally sometimes being used in the court of law and being like called into evidence and they're like actively harming the trans community and the trans community as well as glad and a bunch of other organizations that i've also interacted with have like explicitly communicated to them that this has been wrong and i think a lot of grace has been extended sort of time and time again like trying to educate behind the scenes trying to redirect trying to suggest alternative sort of sources and opinions but again, they're sort of pandering to that like manufactured divisiveness and trying to take this like political correctness approach because it's this politicized issue and not like ostracize anyone on either side. But it really is extremely dangerous. damaging and dangerous. I would recommend everyone, if you listen to this podcast, just Google WPATH or US PATH pubertal suppression statement because they wrote an amazing sort of critical analysis of that article and talk about what the evidence actually is and then really make a lot of points about again like these are this is like the kind of premier media outlet in the world and they're using experts that don't even see trans patients that's insane so you have like you're quoting people that don't even have any clinical experience dealing with a group of people so the whole thing is just wrong on so many levels. And these reporters are smart people. Like they understand what they're doing. And it had to go through these checks and balances, right? Like it's right. not just like some one person signing off. This has see multiple pairs of eyes have seen. Right. And there's this a lot of us in these spaces it. that have been interviewed for these types of pieces, right? But we're never quoted. And if we are, it's in some way that is kind of used to just prop up the negative counterpoint. I've actually stopped interviewing for a lot of those pieces because I, I don't want to allow myself to be like used as a platform to just sort of display anti-trans jargon. Like they're just using us for right. balance to say what they really want to say. Totally. Um, so I think a lot of us have clued in and are just kind of done with it. That makes a lot of sense. I think like Speaking of that, the New York Times article that you were featured in around the clitoris, yeah. I'd love to talk about that study. And I'm sure that you have heard about this and talked about it, but... Basically, you know, this whole, like, the clitoris has 8,000 nerve thing has just been, like, repeated many, many, many times just in, like, mainstream media and all over social media. And, you know, there really has been like increased sort of visibility and a lot of advocates sort of forming around sexual health and especially in regards to the clitoris. And I think that particular line almost became this like rallying cry to like raise awareness of the power of the clitoris as like an erogenous or like sexual organ. And I was doing that research work specifically to better inform the nerves and I'm connecting in phalloplasty, which is a surgery where I make a penis because I use that nerve, like the dorsal nerve of the clitoris is the main nerve that I hook up to provide erogenous sensation in the penis. And talking to my friend, like Dr. Yuloku, who specializes in sexual health, especially for people with vulvar anatomy, 
she kind of like asked me, she's like, wait, are you then like quantifying how many nerve fibers are in that nerve? I'm like, oh yeah, they're like literally sitting in my fridge right now. <laughs> and then she was just like, oh my God, like this is actually a big deal. And then kind of educated me a little bit more about more like the social historical yeah. like consequences of that. And then I kind of realized like there'd be something so incredibly pro-patriarchy and misogynistic to bury the introduction of like how many nerve fibers innervate the clitoris in a paper about building a penis. So. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah, that is, that is kind of funny. Right. So we're like, okay, we need to like take this out of the broader Separate. project and like make it its own thing. And I'm so glad we did, which again is like why one perspective is never enough. And we got the number, which was exciting. It's like over 10,280. But then the question is like, well, like what does that actually mean? Right. And I think it means a lot of things. In my opinion, the biggest thing that it does is it takes down a huge source of misinformation that has kind of been used as this like education and rallying cry. And it really makes you understand that if the main sort of like slogan of this movement is in itself wrong and based off of misinformation, then like what else do we not know? Or like what else Hmm. are we just like not even questioning? over. Right. So it's like laying the foundation of like real science being done to actually learn more and better educate ourselves. And then I'm trying to use that visibility to make a whole lot of other points. So following up that paper, I have um, a video paper coming out showing surgeons how to safely... A video dis- paper? Yeah, showing surgeons how to safely dissect out the dorsal nerve of clitoris. Because it's something wow. that none of us learn. And it's really critical anatomy. And I wanted to use the visibility of that piece to translate into something that will like protect people and protect patients in the operating room. And I think that whole narrative has been taken away. Like, oh, this like number is going to... like you know, prevent nerve injuries and it's going to like help people that have them. And it's like indirectly it may by that education piece and the the number itself is informative. So for me, when I do phalloplasty surgery, understanding how many nerve fibers I have to innervate the penis is actually very important in terms of deciding how many nerves I hook that nerve into, like how many fibers do I need to get to target? How many like different segments of the penis can I divide that clitoral nerve over? And then when I think about the potential of some of the newer techniques we have in nerve surgery, understanding the power of a donor nerve is actually really important for something like a nerve transfer or potentially like grafting to try to repair an iatrogenic injury. So I've written all that into the paper to sort of, again, draw attention to the fact that people that have these injuries or these issues, there's just no options for them. And like no one's looking at it and no one's doing anything about it. And this information should inform further work to potentially look at those techniques. And I'm starting to think about it myself. Like I have a couple ideas of things that I'll probably try at some point, but I think you have to be very like slow and stepwise with it. And there's been some pushback, you know, from some of those people and circles about me trying to get like famous off of like other people's story. It's just very bizarre. Obviously that's (laughs) not the fucking case. That's just so, well, oh my God. Yeah. That's, I mean, that sucks that you're receiving that kind of feedback, but I'm sure an overwhelming majority of it is like positive. It's so positive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you just get used to like turning out and tuning out the negative. And the second you get any degree of like success or like, there's just people are going to have some problem with it. So you just need to like stick true to your why. And it's just like, I'm really happy with the visibility of this piece and like how much coverage it got. It's been in most like major media outlets. It's like, 
I've been able to like lift my friends up around me at the same time, which is so freaking cool. Yeah. Um, I'll actually give you a preview of my friend's Christmas present. They better not watch oh, this. Oh, please do. But I blew up um, the first cross section of the dorsal nerve of clitoris for them. Oh my God. That's so cool. Yeah. So then they're each getting one for Christmas, which is <laughs> fun. But <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very neat and like very nerdy and fun. I know, right? Like, you know, <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, well, okay. I have a question. I don't know if, is it helpful to like try to explain to like the layperson, the listener right now, like like what it actually is like to reconstruct genitalia? I think there is like a lot of mystery around that. And since it is like a relatively newer kind of surgery, I wonder if you can share maybe like tidbits, mm. if that's helpful around like maybe what people don't realize about it or like how challenging it is or like the recovery or I, I mean, I obviously yeah. it's a million things, but there's definitely a lot of misconceptions and certainly I think just like mystery and human curiosity about genital surgery. Yeah. First and foremost, these are major reconstructive surgeries. Like these are not small things. They're very invasive and they have huge recovery periods associated with them. That being said, I think people would be shocked at how good outcomes have gotten. When we think about, you know, vaginal plasty, for example, the vast majority of people maintain erogenous sensation, ability to orgasm. The aesthetics of the vulva are quite accurate. And wow. to the casual glance, most people would not know that wasn't a natal vulva. Most people maintain really good depth, can have sexual penetration. And when you think about phalloplasty or the creation of a penis, which has certainly went through a lot of different iterations, that's probably the about as challenging as a surgery will ever become because you're just creating something that's not there. Yeah. You know, the aesthetics, again, are getting quite good. The vast majority of people now, sometimes with a revision, sometimes not are standing to pee if that's their goal and tipping, like peeing through the tip of the penis. They all have a scrotum, the canal is removed, and I've certainly been working on sensation and I'm starting to have patients have penis-only orgasms that is separate from their buried pleural tissue. So... Absolutely. We're getting awesome. there, you know, yeah. <laughs> like we're getting there. That being said, like it takes a village and it takes a lot of resources and there's a huge learning curve to these surgeries, which is why we need these like centers of excellence and we need formal fellowship training programs, like the program that I train fellows in to like really make sure people are adequately trained because most of these procedures overlap like different fields of medicine so there's you know gynecology there's urology there's plastic surgery like there's no one specialty that's just fully trained to do an entire genital surgery and bring the full spectrum of the skill set that you would need which is why collaboration is really key it's a total team effort yeah wow yeah it is just really fascinating to hear about because i think I do think like the education piece is really important for people who aren't going through that so that they do know number one just how people experience that in general, and number two, if anyone in their circles is experiencing that, like trying to figure out how to support them if that's what they want, like what really that recovery time looks like like and and just to know the facts of like wow, this like the technology and the medicine has gotten so good that it is getting to the point of this is exactly how I want it. I imagine that's how people feel. Yeah, after. and I think, you know, to sort of speak to the necessity of these procedures, like people are often waiting years for a consult, doing tons of hair removal that can be extremely painful, saving tons of money, figuring out how to be off work for months to recover. 
going for inpatient hospital stays, all these things, which I think really speaks to just the power of dysphoria that people experience. Because no one's just going to like want to go through that. <laughs> like, let's be very clear. Right. People need it and they need to just do what they need to do. But I certainly have the odd person that almost has to mourn when they're first in my office, just like accepting that they don't really want to be there because they don't want to have to go through surgery and they like don't want to have to have this procedure and be in pain and all these things. But they just know it's their only like step or option to move forward. Right. And that calls into question a lot about how, you know, we as society treat trans people, especially when we think about something like facial surgery. I've seen people that feel that they need to get facial surgery because it's the only way that they'll ever pass in society and they just can't tolerate the transphobia they face Mm. on a day-to-day basis and the constant misgendering because of their facial appearance. But maybe in, in a world where people were just accepted as they were and gendered properly, they wouldn't necessarily feel the need to go through that. So it's ironic and it's interesting because the people that are the biggest advocates against gender affirming surgery, they're like trying to prevent you know, early treatment for teens and ban coverage of all these procedures are the ones that are in many ways like driving it up by not giving people access to hormonal therapy that'll prevent surgery or by not creating a society where people are safely affirmed just for who they are and don't need surgery to make you think that they're the gender that they are. Right. And there are so many cultures, not in the US, right, but other cultures in other countries who have third gender people or non-binary people or trans people as just a part of their community and part of their culture. And it's very accepted, very normal. Like what a different experience that must be for trans people in those communities. Oh, totally. And whenever I sort of say that, like there's always going to be trans people that have just intrinsic dysphoria and need care regardless of how accepting society is. But external dysphoria or like dysphoria that you're feeling because of the way that people are reacting to you is like a very real thing. Right. Absolutely. And I I can imagine only because I am a cis person and still have felt so much judgment based on other things that I've experienced, based on my body or my weight or the way in which I am or talk or, you know, there's just so much judgment and society and folks who you meet, strangers can be really harsh and it can feel very overwhelming, especially when you're a young person and you're just coming into your own, whoever you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah but definitely different challenges and the challenges I've experienced, most people have, and they haven't been legislated against me, right? Like that's the the difference here yeah. um, and why it's important to talk about. But Blair, we're running out of time here. Uh, <laughs> maybe at some point later in the season, we can have you uh, back on for a part two because this has been so wonderful and I'm so appreciative of you being here. I've learned a lot. But if we can just close, I would love to hear like what's next for you. Uh, where can folks find you and access your research and your info? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's the same on both. It's at Queer Surgeon. My research, most of it is referenced in PubMed. I often try to share tidbits of it on social media. And I am also getting better at pooling resources to publish everything open access so people can read it so it's not behind the academia firewalls (laughs) and what's next i mean i think just more of the same i um i'm busy i'm in the or three to four days a week just trying to care for people continuing advocacy work 
Um, I have a lot going on in terms of sensory and genital research. So I have some studies that I'm working on, um, including following up that clitoral study with some work on the innervation of the penis, which will be exciting. Nice. Um, Yeah. So just kind of more of the same keep on keeping on type of thing. (laughs) Love it. Well, when that research, I mean, obviously some of these things can take years and years to complete. um, But when some of it is complete, I would love to have you back on to talk about your findings because I'm just continuously fascinated by research and think that it's really helpful to be able to translate that research to people who want to know what's going on. Yeah, no, for sure. I I will keep y'all posted. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on Blair. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Katherine Cohen. Our co-producer is Brian Peoples. Our social media intern is Sarah Kelly. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. Want to advertise with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on IG at sex ed with DB podcast and on TikTok at sex ed with DB. See you next time.